There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a special extra episode, a live recording of the first in our series of in-conversation events. This one features Progress Chair Alison McGovern talking to former Shadow Foreign Secretary and current Chair of the Brexit Select Committee, Hilary Benn, about Brexit, of course, Doc Martin's boots, and how he wrote that speech. If you're interested in coming to an event like this in future, do visit prog.rs forward slash events. Right. I knew you'd want to talk about it. I'm very happy to talk about Dr. Martins because I've worn Dr. Martins for a number of years and I did eventually encourage my dad to follow suit. And there is a painting of him in Portcullis House on the first floor. Tom, hi. On the first floor level. Uh, And it's over in the, if you've got your back to the River Thames and this is Portcullis House, it's in that corner there. And um, the man who painted the picture, a wonderful artist by the name of Andrew Tift, um, I had to interview him once with my dad about the painting of the picture for the House of Commons Art Committee. It was all a bit bizarre. My dad insisted on smoking his pipe, and a man came in and said, if you carry on doing that, the whole of Port Carlos House will have to be evacuated. (laughs) So he did eventually agree not to do it. But um, not without debate. uh, Not without debate and a certain amount of protest. But anyway, in the picture, he is wearing a pair of brown Dr. Martins. But one of the reasons I think Andrew Tift is the most extraordinary artist is not only did he notice that the laces in, on one of the shoes were round and on the other shoe were flat. He painted them. So if you look very, very carefully at the picture, you will see round laces and flat laces. And I guarantee there is no other place in the world where a pair of brown DMs has been so lovingly recorded in oils <laughs> than in that particular photograph, Yeah. Uh, in that particular picture. Yeah. So there you are. That's, well, that is... That's almost on a par with being asked by the students at um, Notre Dame Sixth Form College last Friday. The final question was, what is your favourite colour? 
You obviously said red. Right? Well, I said for campaigning purposes, red, but otherwise, navy blue. <gasps> and it, uh, well, there you are, I got exactly the same reaction. And I'm none the wiser as to why saying navy blue was, anyway. Is that because it's Spurs away kit? That's a very, very good, that's one, that's a one very, very good reason. And I'm sorry we only managed to draw with Southampton yesterday. You're very yeah. well informed. Yeah. There we are. Any I more football you, questions I I before we you, move on to Brexit? I told, I told you I was a Benite. Um, now, <laughs> a Hillary Benite. Anyway, your dad had this amazing place in Parliament, but I, the thing that I really want to ask you about, before, long before we get on to Brexit and the horrors of it, is about an occasion where you really captured the House. And if I am a Member of Parliament, which I doubt I will be for many scores of years, there will be one occasion in particular that I will always think of as probably the finest example of our craft as politicians that I've experienced in that chamber. And it is, of course, your speech on Syria and extending the military action that we were taking to defend the government of Iraq over the border into Syria. But it's not really, I mean, you know, I, I could spend a long time asking you about Iraq and Syria and all the rest of it. What I really wanted to ask was about the speech itself. Mm -hmm. how, how does the speech like that begin? How do you start it? You know, you know, you've got to give those words on that incredibly political occasion. But is there something about the process of doing it, the process of putting the words together, that is the same come what may, or on occasion like that, are you just like driven by the politics and the words just come? How does it start? Well, it was a speech I thought very carefully about. The starting point for all speeches is, what do you think about the issue? What is it you want to say? And if you're sure in your mind, and I was, having thought really long and hard about this and had advanced some of the arguments at meetings of the PLP and in discussion with a lot of colleagues in the run-up to that, in one sense, it makes it easier to make it because, you know, the hardest thing for a politician and ministers experience it in government where they have to get up and defend things they may not personally wholly agree with. Uh, and that happens from time to time because we're members of coalitions, broad coalitions, broad churches, so on and so forth. But in this particular case, I got up and said what I thought, and that shaped uh, what I had to say. I thought carefully about how to structure it. I knew I had about 15 minutes, and you try stuff out. And, and I went it? at, I mean, practically, I had a kind of draft, and I went back up to my room probably around, what time, did we finish it? 10? Yes, I think it was. So I went up at about 8 and ran through what I wanted to say, because when you've only got 15 minutes, you really do need to pick your words with care. So I didn't get up and just make it up on the spot. That is not the case. And you've listened to the debate and the arguments. And I was very keen at the beginning to pick out people who'd spoken, including those who'd spoken against the proposition that I was asking the House to support, because I think it's important to acknowledge, as I did in the speech, that you know there are arguments either way on this. And I respect those who take a different view. Not everybody who looked at the view I said, I expressed that night, respected it, judging by the a huge number of emails, supportive and abusive, that I got, the telephone calls that my office here and in the constituency got, probably more abusive than supportive. But I realised that it had obviously had an impact and people felt very strongly about the subject. So, and it was an, a rather strange occasion because I was speaking from the dispatch box in opposition to the leader of our party, but to Jeremy's enormous credit, he had accepted there would be a free vote of Labour Party MPs. People, some people forget this. They say, <clears throat> went against the whip. No, 
there wasn't a whip. It was a free vote. And actually, it's, it's the way to resolve it. And I remember saying the other thing I just mentioned is when I met my team, because I was the Shadow Foreign Secretary at the time, and we had our team meeting, I said, look, I just want to say this about tomorrow. I don't want you to vote in the way that you know that I'm going to vote just because you feel you ought to do so because you're part of my team. I want you to vote in the way that you think is right in the same way that I am going to do. And I think that is important because we need to respect people who take a different view. And I think there's a broader lesson uh, there for our party because we have our differences <coughs> and so on and so forth. But the fact that the Labour Party is a very broad church, always has been, and I hope always will be, is a fantastic strength. And respecting one another and not abusing one another is my kind of politics. Yeah. And it does start the speech. It starts with an incredible amount of decency because the speech itself responds to David Cameron's less than generous words yeah. um, about Jeremy Corbyn. So that decency really does, I think, shine. Well, I was very cross about that because, you know, to go to the Tory 1922 committee and say, don't let the terrorist sympathisers win tomorrow or the day after was a pretty outrageous thing to do. And David Cameron's speech was completely hamstrung because he refused oh. to do the decent thing, which was to apologise to Jeremy for what he'd said, which is why I got up and said what I said about Jeremy at the start of my speech. Now, just to turn to the issue itself, not particularly about Syria or Iraq, yeah. there is a particular part of the speech which, as I say, if I'm, if I'm in this place for a very long time indeed, will always stay with me. And it goes to, I think, a principle that a lot of us are wrestling with at the moment um, about being a progressive in the world and internationalism. And if you will bear with me, Hilary, I'm just going to read it out with your permission, if that's allowed. Well, I can't stop you, so. <laughs> of course. No, you can't. Um, so <laughs> you said, I hope the House will bear with me. And I have nothing like your powers of projection, but you said, I hope the House will bear with me if I direct my closing remarks to my Labour friends and colleagues. As a party, we have always been defined by our internationalism. We believe we have a responsibility one to another. We never have and we never should walk by on the other side. And then you go on to say, what we know about fascists is that they need to be defeated. It's why, as we have heard tonight, socialists, trade unionists and others joined the International Brigade in the 1930s to fight against Franco. And you're drawing on a particular part of our history and our tradition. And we sit here at a time when responsibility to protect seems now like a distant dream. We have a refugee crisis in Europe that is, frankly, more troubling to most of our partners than Brexit is. And we've got a disaster in the way that the Rohingya have been treated that is yet again an example of where the world will think of the opportunities where it might have acted sooner. Do you think that those ideas of progressive internationalism are gone? I mean, are we stuck in this do nothing, can't do anything world now? Well, we're definitely going through a more difficult time because there are those who are trying to undermine confidence in the international institutions we created out of the horror and the ashes of the Second World War the United Nations and the World Bank and the IMF and the European Convention of Human Rights and all of those things. And there are those who are trying to devote themselves to pulling that entire edifice down. Uh, do we need it now? We need it more than ever. The challenge is how do you make it work? 
Because if, if someone on the receiving end of Daesh's genocide, attempted genocide of the Yazidis, was clutching a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they might say, these are fantastic words, these are terrific principles. Is anyone going to come and give effect to them in order to save me from what I'm facing? Now, it's, it's really, really difficult because my, my argument with those who say it's not our responsibility and we've done other things that haven't worked and, uh, and that is true is... In the end, you have a choice to make. And I just felt really strongly that the argument, it's not our problem, sorry you're having a hard time, there's nothing we can do, I'm going to look the other way, which is why I use those words. We have a responsibility one to another. Where you can help, or to use the words from the very end of my speech, do our bit, then I think we have a moral responsibility to do so. And when people say, with, with perfectly justifiable force, but you haven't done something about this, this and this, my response is, you know what, just because you can't do the right thing everywhere in the world has never struck me as a very good argument for not trying to do the right thing somewhere where you have the opportunity or the will. That is my starting and uh, ending point. And I would like the international community to be more capable of providing its leadership. There is an issue with the United Nations and the Security Council because the veto exists to bind the big powers into the UN. And if you didn't have the veto, they might up and walk. And then the United Nations would be much weaker as an institution. On the other hand, we know that the veto can prevent action being taken. I'm a supporter of the French proposal that uh, President Hollande had been sponsoring. I met Hubert Vedrin, the former French foreign minister, and their proposal was in the case of uh, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, they were arguing that the permanent members of the Security Council should volunteer not to use the veto in those circumstances. Now, it's complex because who's going to define whether it is a crime against humanity, a war crime or genocide on the one hand. But in this particular case, the UN had passed a resolution calling on us to do things. And I did also point out in the speech that the motion passed at Labour Party conference, which laid down certain conditions, in my view, had been <coughs> met. But that was a that was a political and a textual analysis of what conference had said needed to be done. And I'd say two years later, undoubtedly, Daesh has been removed from the places that they had occupied. Many people in that debate said it would not happen. Uh, it couldn't be done. And of course, it was a combination of those who were contributing from uh, the air. And you can't bring peace from the air, but you can help to defeat fascists in those circumstances, but it was the forces on the ground that made it possible in a terribly bloody, difficult conflict. And I respect those who, from a point of view of principle, say, you know, I don't believe in violence as a way of solving the world problems. Um, but I think if someone is coming at you with a knife to remove your head from your body because you're a humanitarian worker or rape you because you're a ZD or cut your head off because you won't bow the knee to them, in the end, you face a pretty practical question. If it's you, what are you going to do? And there are circumstances when I think it's important that we do stand up because otherwise uh, evil triumphs. Now, that is not the answer to all of the problems of the world. And trying to explain that there was a distinction, uh, certainly in my argument, between what we do about Daesh over here and the terrible conflict in Syria, to which I argued consistently, as did many other people, the only way out of this is a ceasefire and a political process. There is no solution using military force um, to the problems of Syria. Now, the two are obviously connected, 
But I distinguish because you hope that there can be a compromise and a political solution in the Syrian crisis. I have no idea what any compromise with Daesh would look like because it seems to me the very nature of their fundamentalist violence brooks no compromise with anyone. It's not like you can say to them, can we agree that you only throw gay people off the second floor of the building as opposed to the fourth? Well, that's not a compromise that I think that we should be prepared to make, uh, never mind the things that they did to other people. We have not, however, defeated the ideology. And that is a much more complex long-term challenge that we continue to face. And in that, uh, clearly you're still so all, all over all of those arguments and debates. And we, you know, we've had these discussions as a party. Um, these international issues are very important to us. Um, given the choice, Diffid Secretary or Chair of the Brexit Committee, which would you have? Oh, crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> I never said this was going to be easy. No, you didn't. <laughs> to be honest, when someone suggested I might stand to be Chair of the Brexit Committee, my first reaction was, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but maybe that's about the way in which I uh, uh, approach life, because that's probably been my reaction to a number of other things that I've eventually gone on to do. Uh, in life, but somebody had to do it, and uh, it's certainly a job and a half. And I've learned something new every single day. Uh, but I have to say, the I look back on my time as the Secretary of State for International Development with uh, extraordinary fondness and a, a little bit of pride because of one or two things I was able to do, because it was a job that one revealed to me how ignorant. I was about the world in the true sense of the word, I do not know. <clears throat> and secondly, because it transformed the way in which I see and think about the world and gave me a much better understanding. Uh, and I had the privilege of working with a lot of fabulous people, including Tom who's sitting at, uh, over there as my uh, PPS. Um, and it was an absolute privilege. And I must confess, I was very sad to leave, but everything has a time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we move on to the to the like slightly, you know, 
boring Brexit. Okay. It won't be boring, I promise. It's just that we spend nothing, our time talking about nothing else. If you had to pick your, the thing that you would say in either in government, but I think specifically in DFID, the thing that you're most proud of, the thing that where you felt that was the thing that I felt made a difference, what would you pick? Well, I think I would pick the uh, UN Emergency Response Fund because I had to deal with a number of emergencies. And it struck me that the way the system worked is there'd be an earthquake, there'd be a terrible war, refugee crisis. And the UN agencies would say, there's a crisis. Can you give us money so we can respond? I thought, this is a really odd way of doing things. It's a bit like you ring up the fire brigade. There's a fire in the House of Parliament. Right? We'll be there as soon as we can. And the London Fire Brigade puts the phone down and issues an appeal for ladders <laughs> and uh, hoses and money to buy diesel to put in the tank of the fire engines. What? So I proposed in a speech I made at the Overseas Development Institute a number of reforms to the international humanitarian system based on my experience. Not when I came in, because when I came in, this was all new to me, but I dealt with these things and thought, well, this isn't working. And one of the proposals I made was that we should establish a fund into which countries would put money. So when the crisis came, the UN could get to work without having to make an appeal. Then it would undoubtedly appeal for more money if it was a major crisis, because there'd be more work to do. And we met in New York at the United Nations and what's known as the SURF, CERF, uh, CERF, the Common Emergency Response Fund, was agreed and launched, and the largest contributor was the United <laughs> Kingdom because of what the Labour government was doing uh, on the aid budget. And I look back at that and think, well, that made a difference. And in politics and in life, um, it's really important that we do occasionally pause to acknowledge uh, our achievements and that includes the achievements of the last Labour government, because it gives us an encouragement to go on and do more. And, uh, oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and you didn't ask me this question, but I'm very proud that I happened to be sitting in the seat at the time that enabled me to create the South Downs National Park, because it's not often you get the chance to preserve forever a beautiful place. And the history of this, as I'm sure many of you know, was that in 1940. Seven, a man called Arthur Hobhouse drew up a list of the beautiful places in England that he thought should be preserved for posterity. And in 1949, amid the post-war difficulties that Atlas government was facing, the Labour government legislated to preserve beauty in the form of the 1949 National Parks Act. And the South Downs was the very last place on the list that hadn't been designated a national park. And the night before I uh, went to Ditchling, wonderful place in Sussex. You should go to Ditchling because if you stand at the crossroads looking south, there is Ditchling Beacon, wonderful shapes of the downs staring at you. And one of the decisions I had to take was to include Ditchling or not in the National Park, which I did. And I went to the tea rooms to sign the orders. And the night before, I sent a copy of the map to Margaret Beckett and Michael Meacher and a couple of other former Labour ministers, because they'd worked long and hard on this. I happened to be sitting in the chair when the opportunity came, and I signed those orders with relish, with Ditchling Beacon, I like to think, peering approvingly over the back wall of the Ditchling tea rooms as the National Park was created. So, eerie. So here's, here's to international relief funds and preserving beauty. And preserving beauty. That's, that's what the Labour Party's for, folks. <laughs> so... 
to move on to something less beautiful and enjoyable. Brexit. The Brexit okay. committee. Okay. David Davis then. Is he up to the job? I don't. I is he? Come on, be honest. No, I don't want to comment about. I don't. No, I don't. I don't want to comment about an individual. I think the government, by its behaviour thus far, is not demonstrating that it's up to the job. We are 19 months since the referendum. There are nine months to go until the negotiation is meant to end. The government has not yet revealed to us what a deep, special, bespoke partnership means. Every European representative I meet, they all say, well, when are you going to tell us what you want? When? And we won't start negotiating this new deep and special bespoke relationship until March. And while the government is divided, well, why has this happened? Because the government is divided. We read in the papers, the cabinet subcommittee has two more meetings yet to go while they try and reconcile these completely different views about what our future relationship should be like. And all the time, tick tock, tick tock, the one thing that isn't divided is the clock because it's running down. Do you think do you think it's reconcilable? Do you think there's Well, they have to make choices, Alison. That's what they've got to do. And thus far they've given the impression we can have all the good things that we like. We're gonna get a wonderful all singing Canada plus plus plus, whatever Canada plus 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 is. Michel Barnier, when we met us, said, No, no, you're gonna get a Canada dry deal. Do they still make Canada dry? Does anyone know? Do they? Somebody is it gin? Well, no, I think, wasn't it something you, I'm a teetotaler, so what do I know, but wasn't it something you poured into? Is that what it was? There we are. Right, okay. Right, well, there we are. It was, um, so what are they So Michelle Barnier's jokes are a bit old hat, is what we're saying. Well, there you are. We're all, we're all products of our yeah. age, and most people below a certain age would look at you and say, what is that man talking about? What is a Canada Dry? But, a what? Yeah. We'll Google it, yeah. Oh, we'll Good Google job. it. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. in, no, that is entirely true. Uh, the argument that I would make now is this. There are choices that you have made. You've set red lines. There are choices still to be made. The thing about life is that choices have consequences. And as the Select Committee said in its report before Christmas, we find it very, very hard to see how you can reconcile, on the one hand, the government's choice to leave the customs union and the single market, and on the other hand, with ensuring that the border we went to visit in Armagh on the 7th of December as the Select Committee You've never seen so many MPs being photographed staring at a piece of tarmac. <laughs> but it was a highly symbolic piece of tarmac. The only reason you knew the border was there, apart from a sign, was that the yellow line comes up on the Irish side and then the white line comes on the Northern Ireland side. And we were told as we stood there, the cars and the lorries and the people went boom, boom, boom. It was quite a dangerous road to cross. 30 years ago, there were watchtowers, there were police posts, there were army posts, there were checkpoints. That is what was happening in Northern Ireland. And the whole point of going there was to see there's nothing there now. That is exactly how we want to keep it. Now you've got a choice. Now they may have drafted the way around this problem by saying the fallback on the fallback will be full alignment if we can't do it by other means. But what, what does full alignment mean? Because if you want a border that has no checks, no infrastructure, then there are that means you're going to have to choose certain policies to achieve it unless it can be m miraculously happen on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, which it won't. And the, the Brexiteers who say, well, we'll never put checks and tariffs on the border. Well, you might argue that, but believe you me, the Republic will have to do so because that's the entry <coughs> to the 27 member states. And if you have no checks on that border, 
then the goods that come across will, can go to Greece, Slovakia, Germany and France. So it's, it's an example of the government's unwillingness thus far to face the consequences of the choices it has made. And I tell you, the really th- thing that happened over the weekend is the speech by Carolyn Fairbairn of the CBI. She said, we believe that staying in a customs union with the European Union is more important than having the ability to negotiate our own free day, uh, trade deals. I've been arguing that as a, a backbencher uh, for some time now. But I thought that was significant and we ought to rally to that cause. Single market is a bit more complicated in labour politics because of free movement. But on the single market, uh, on the customs union, in my view, there is no argument at all. And I look forward to the day where unequivocally the party says is its official position in favour of staying in a customs union. Excellent. Who's the... um, Yeah, we can definitely clap for that. Um, Who's the... Thank you. Who's the in in all the many people you've had in front of your committee? Um, I'm I'm guessing that David Davis pro- probably isn't the most impressive, but I can say that you you probably ought not to. Who do you feel is the most um, interesting witness that you've had, or the person who who's been the most kind of intriguing that people wouldn't necessarily expect? Because one of the things that I found with Brexit is that you're forever looking under rocks. And just when you think you can survey the landscape of all the problem, you turn over another rock and there's yet another complication. So who do you feel is like the person who's come before the committee and all the members have thought, blimey, that is, re- that is really crucial evidence. Well, funnily enough, we had, I mean, there've been a number of witnesses that would fit into that category, but we had before us last week, the legal counsel to the Canadian government during the CETA negotiations. And he was very, very impressive because my opening question was what was the EU like to negotiate with? Uh, Because we might as well gain experience because uh, they'd done it recently. But he was making the point, many points, including the one that I've just made about the trade-offs. There are trade-offs here and it depends what you want. And if you watched uh, President Macron's uh, terrific interview on uh, the Andrew Marr programme yesterday, he said, look, if, if you want to continue to have access and you're going to abide by our rules, well, that's fine. The problem we have at the moment is all about government's wish to diverge. That is where the problems begin. As long as you maintain full alignment, it's easier, accepting the rules and so on and so forth. The moment you want to diverge, then Europe says, oh, now hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. What is the consequence of this going to be for, for this, that and the other? And so he was extremely good. We had a representative from the three million who turned up and opened my eyes to the problems that the three million European citizens here in the UK are facing. She said, I've applied for my permanent residence card. And literally, she picked up from the floor and put a pile of paper this big on the tables. I think she said, I've been living here for 27 years. This is half of what I'm going to have to submit to prove to the Home Office I ought to have a residence card. And we then looked further into this and found that a year ago, 30% of those applications were being refused, not because people hadn't been living in the UK for many years, but they couldn't provide evidence of what they'd done at every minute. Now, most people don't live their lives thinking, I must keep that ticket for the six-week visit I made to India to prove that I was actually travelling from Britain and coming back. And that has led to a lot of concern. And the Home Office has finally realised 
you can't possibly use that system to document three million people, which is what they're going to have to do. So that was that was evidence that, yes, as I said, opened my eyes to a problem that I hadn't uh, really thought about. And last Thursday, we went to Cambridge, to the amazing bioscience park south of the city. It's astonishing. You've got the hospital. You've got Papworth Hospital is moving there to a new building. AstraZeneca building their uh, European research headquarters. You've got Cancer UK. You've got the Medical uh, Research Centre Labs. It's the only tour I've ever been on where the two guides were both Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> and this astonishing, why is this the centre of great scientific innovation? Because they've got access to the best people from all over the world. And their first argument, beautifully put by the witnesses, was that we need to be able to continue to do that. Because this is where life-saving drugs and understanding will come from. We met a scientist who's looking at why Alzheimer's happens. He said, we've identified a protein uh, that appears to stick with other bits of this protein and gets in the way of the neural pathways that causes Alzheimer's. We're trying to understand why it does that. What can we do to stop it doing that? This is the future. Or cancers, you no longer talk about breast cancer because there's lots of different types. Because as we could see further down with DNA, genome sequencing, all of that stuff, this is where the knowledge of the future is going to help to uh, treat diseases that we can't effectively treat at the moment and create life-saving drugs. A quarter of the world's top 100 prescription medicines were developed in which country? Okay. Our country, yeah. the United Kingdom. Now, when people say, how are we going to maintain our economic strength as the sixth biggest economy in the world, this wonderful group of small islands off the north coast of Europe, well, that's one of the answers to the question. And therefore, making sure that all of that uh, experience and quest and inquiry and innovation and expertise and lots of experiments in the end fail, because that's how you make progress. You try it, it doesn't work, you try something else. That's certainly the uh, story of progress at the moment. Um, <laughs> little, little politics joke for you there. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there on Brexit, but when I'm sure people, when we take questions from the floor, I'm sure people will have Brexit-related <laughs> questions. But um, when the last person I um, did in conversation with was at Progress Political Weekend last year, and it was Harriet Harman. Okay. And, um, and I gave her... Um, a series of quick fire questions. Um, oh no. But I'm not going to do that oh, thank this you. evening because I feel yeah. like I've already been fairly mean. I did ask her um, who her favourite was, Gordon Brown or Tony Blair. So be, be, be grateful. But um, just thinking about the Labour Party, I, I, do, I do want to just, just sort of finish my set of questions but just by asking you, Hilary, you know, you, you I mean, I hesitate. You're obviously not old, but you've been around quite a while. Um, and um, you started very young. In fact, we were both 25 when we were first elected as councillors, I discovered today, um, if, if Wikipedia is correct anyway. That is true. There we go. So in all of that, in all of that time, you know, you've been in different uh, Labour parties up and down the country. You must have known an extraordinary number of members of the Parliamentary Labour Party. In all of that time, if you had to pick one person who you would say, the person who I really truly admire and who I felt was a sort of inspiration um, or an interesting or an important figure, 
who would you who would you pick? Well, and the, it's a terrible question. No, no, no. Well, the, the honest answer is my father for a whole host of reasons that I think everyone in the room would understand. He was, you know, what is our job as parents? I've got we've got four kids. Our most important job as parents is to love and encourage our children. That's what it's about. And he was always very encouraging. I used to say that if I'd walked up to the dispatch box, tripped, banged my head, forgotten my speech, and made a total fool of myself, when I went to see Dad or rang him up, he would have said, he would have said, H, you certainly got the attention of the house today. <laughs> In other words, he would always look on the bright side of all the disasters and difficulties that you uh, face. And he put up with a lot in his life and that kind of binds you together. That's, I think, the thing that I learned because at the time when he was a very unpopular politician and hated and the press was on his back and I mean, I, I won't go into all the stories, but it, it, it brings you closer together and I suppose it's given me some understanding when I then experienced myself being on the receiving end of unpleasantness, including supposedly from fellow members of the political party of which we are both members, it helps you to cope with that. But I would, I, I think I would say Clem Attlee. Now, when I was 11, uh, and this shows how old I am, um, uh, my father took me to the Royal Albert Hall where the Labour Party was having a big political rally in the wake of Kevin McNamara's success in the uh, Hull North by-election of 1966, which many of you in the room will remember, because it led Wilson, I think, to decide, I'm going to go to the country and try and get a bigger majority. And my dad said, Hillary, come with me before it started. And he took me up to this very frail old man who was standing there. And he said, uh, Hillary, this is Earl Attlee. And I met him when I was 11 years of age. And I have on my wall in my office upstairs, I have a very large uh, replica of the postage stamp that the Royal Mail issued last year, the year before on Prime Ministers. I've got one of Clem Attlee and, and one of uh, Harold Wilson. I think Attlee was extraordinary because what, of course, you understand from the history is he was Labour leader for 20 years, but people were always trying to get rid of him <laughs> and undermine him and argue. And he was a creature of another age. He was famously monosyllabic. My dad did a, a party political with him once in the era of TV, and they had all these questions to ask Atley. And after about 20 minutes, he finished with them all because you'd say, well, what do you think of this issue? Haven't thought about it. <laughs> do you think we should uh, follow this particular policy? Yes. <laughs> and he was, I think he would not have found it terribly easy in the modern media age, but he might have gone down a store. Well, he I mean, might. I might try that. And I think, you see, uh, I think this is the era in which we, we should always strive to elect people who are authentic. And I think some of what we've seen recently is about the public saying, well, we may not agree with everybody about a person about everything, but boy, they seem authentic to us. And I think it's very important in life to be authentic, stand up for what you believe in. Um, and hold to that and don't be afraid to change your mind. I've changed my mind on lots of things during the course of my life. And when my dad was once asked, how many, what about your mistakes? He said, I've made far too many mistakes to mention now. It would take all evening. <laughs> um, but I think at a time which was even more difficult economically, out of the ashes of the Second World War, additional rationing in Britain to help feed the people of Germany. Mm. Now that is demonstrating our that. responsibility one to another, mm. despite the terrible 
sacrifice that had been faced by people in, uh, in defeating fascism, legislating for beauty, and the greatest achievement of Labour ever, establishing the National Health Service. Now, if that isn't something to admire, I don't know what it is. So Clem Attlee is my, is my uh, Labour hero. Fabulous. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Progressive Britain podcast. If you have any feedback, please do let us know by emailing us at office at progressonline.org.uk or by leaving a review on iTunes. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, this podcast was produced by the brilliant Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.